Last week in Beaver Creek, Ohio, a group of friends got together and they decided to go get breakfast with each other at the same place at the same time in the same restaurant. So this group of 16 people converged upon the same restaurant at the same time to go enjoy a breakfast with one another. They enjoyed their breakfast, their community, their fellowship. And as the breakfast was coming to an end, one of the people in the 16 pulled out a gift bag and it was empty, but that person also pulled out a $100 bill and put it in the gift bag and then passed it to the next person. And the next person put a $100 bill in the gift bag and passed it to the next person, and each person in this group of 16 goes around and puts a $100 bill in the gift bag. Then they called over the waitress. The waitress comes over, and they said, hey, we haven't received the bill yet, but here's a bag of money. This pays for not only our bill, but whatever's left in there is for you for your tip. The waitress opens up the bag, and there's $1,600 cash. Their bill was under $200, so that meant that there was over $1,400 for her tip. And she bursts into tears, one after another. One of these, these, these friends keep coming up, and they, they give her a hug, and they say the same two words, Merry Christmas. Turns out this group, it wasn't the first time that they've done this. They've nicknamed themselves the Breakfast Santas. And they go from restaurant to restaurant throughout Beaver Creek because a couple months ago, perhaps you remember Beaver Creek being on the news because tornadoes pretty much devastated the town, financially ruined a lot of people. So this group of breakfast Santas, they want to spread Christmas joy from going to restaurant to restaurant to bless people that might be having hard financial times. In fact, it's become this national movement. There's breakfast Santa groups all over the place. I haven't heard of it in Farmington yet, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, of people going to, to restaurants to bless the, the staff there. So after I heard the story, I was like, that's a really cool story. That's really awesome. I'm curious. I wonder what happened with the, the waitress. I wonder what she did with the $1,400 tip. And so, I, I don't know. I, I was trying to think, what, what could she do with that money? Maybe she went, went home after her shift and she got herself a brand new coach purse or new Gucci shoes or something. Maybe she went to Walmart or Target and bought a bunch of Christmas gifts for her loved ones, her family, or perhaps her kids. Maybe she paid down her mortgage. Maybe she paid off some of the credit card debt that she has. I was curious, but then it found out she was interviewed by the news and they asked her the same question. What would you do with the $1,400 tip? Here's what she did. She took that bag of cash, went to the back of the restaurant to the kitchen and pulled out $700 and gave it to the cook. She also spread Christmas joy. Now here's the question that I've got for you this morning. Who's the star of that story? Perhaps the person who had the idea in the first place to create a bunch of breakfast Santas to go and bless people throughout the town. Perhaps it's each one of those individual members, the 16 people who contributed the $1,600. Perhaps the star of the story is the woman who gave more than anybody else, gave $700 to the cook. Perhaps there's multiple stars in this story. This is kind of similar to the question we've been looking at and wrestling with in the last couple of weeks. Who is the star of the Christmas story? Now, of course, the star of the Christmas story is Jesus, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. We celebrate Christmas because of Christ. However, that being said, that's what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks is other people that helped pave the way for the arrival of the Christ. They paved the way for the Messiah. They paved the way for Jesus to show up. So there's something worth mentioning about some of those people in the Christmas story as well. Two weeks ago, we looked at a guy named Abraham. Thousands of years before Jesus was ever even born, Abraham chose to be obedient. He chose to listen to God, and because he was obedient, he was blessed by that. God gave him a son, Isaac, who had a son, who had a son, who had a son, and eventually 42 generations later, Jesus was born. Had he not been obedient, had Abraham not been obedient, perhaps he wouldn't have had a son Isaac, perhaps we wouldn't have a savior in Jesus. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Last week we talked about Mary and Joseph. Now, an angel comes to Mary one day and says, hey, good news, you're going to give birth to the son of God. Now, Mary could have said, 
No, 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 pick somebody else. I don't know, I don't know what that's going to do for my reputation. I don't know how Joseph's going to handle that. Pick somebody else, and if you don't, I'm going to abort the baby. She could have said that, but instead she said, I am the Lord's servant. She could say that. She could make that declaration for herself, but she can't say that on behalf of other people. She couldn't make that decision for Joseph. So she tells Joseph she's pregnant, and this is what we talked about last week, too. He was like, ah, at first, I, I don't think you're telling me the truth. I think you're crazy. I think you're nuts. I'm going to divorce you discreetly. But then an angel came to Joseph, too. And the angel says, she's not lying. Your wife's not crazy. She's not uh, making this story up. She really is pregnant, and the baby inside her is from the Holy Spirit. So take her home as your wife. When Joseph woke up from the dream, he obeyed. Had he not awaked, awakened, had he not woke up and obeyed, perhaps billions of lives would be different. But because he woke up and obeyed, billions of lives, billions of eternities were forever changed because of his decision, because of Mary's decision, because of Abraham's decision. So yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season. He's the star of the Christmas story, but there's a lot of other people that had a, an important role that perhaps became stars in this story that they didn't even realize the importance and the significance of their decisions. So that's what we've looked about so far. Today, we're flipping the script because there's another character in the Christmas story who thought the whole thing was about him. He thought the world revolved around him. He thought everybody should bow down and worship him. He thought it was all about him. He thought he was the star of the show. His name is King Herod. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2 as we dive in. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to start. As you turn there in your Bibles, let me give you a little bit of the backstory of King Herod. King Herod, he was... Uh, hired by the Roman government to be the quote-unquote king of the Jews. So he was hired to, to be in charge of all the Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire, specifically in the city of Jerusalem. Now, now he did a pretty good job by honoring the Jewish people. He perpetuated Judaism. He helped the Jewish people. In fact, there was a torn-down temple in the city of Jerusalem. He rebuilt it when he was the king. He didn't just rebuild the, the, the temple. He, he built it to better specifications than, it had it, than how it was before it was torn down. It was more beautiful. It was more ornate. It was decorated better after he restored the temple. So that's, that's a pretty good nod in the right direction for the, for the Jews. Not only did he do that, he, he built theaters. He built amphitheaters. He built outdoor stadiums. He built all sorts of th different things. He was really good as a developer, building commerce. He was really good at building things. In fact, it earned him the nickname of Herod the Great. That was his reputation, Herod the Great. Now, that was the good side of Herod. Unfortunately for Herod, he also had a bad side. He had a dark side, perhaps an evil side, because this too was true about Herod. He was a lying, deceitful, manipulative, violent king. He was paranoid that somebody would take his throne. He was paranoid that somebody would, would take his crown and become somehow in some way the king of the Jews. And so he was very, very cautious with everybody around him. He was always looking over his shoulder. He was always paranoid. So much to the point where he even had his own wife, his first wife, wife executed because he was worried that she might take over his throne someday. And that was just his first wife. He did the same thing to his second wife. He murdered his, his mother-in-law, even three of his own sons. Now, the mother-in-law, I understand, but everybody else... <laughs> I'm kidding. I stole that from Pastor Tim. <laughs> That's <was> his joke. <laughs> Everybody 
has, he's killing all these people. He's so paranoid. He's paranoid that somebody's going to take his crown. Somebody's going to take his authority. Somebody's going to take his power. He's willing to do anything, willing to murder anybody to make sure nobody becomes the king. Now, this, this is the person that we're about to look at. There's a dichotomy here. On one side, he's Herod the Great, great developer, great idea person. But on the, on the other hand, he's a psychopathic serial killer. <laughs> that's King Herod. So that being said, that's where we're going to jump into the story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. This is part of the Christmas story. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of psychopathic King Herod, the serial killer, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Now let me stop here and talk about Magi for a second. The Magi, this term Magi, comes from the Greek language, comes from the word of magos, which is where we get the word magic. A lot of people viewed the Magi as people who were magicians. Now, it wasn't because they knew a lot of cool, fancy card tricks and they could do all sorts of different things. It wasn't because they could, like, you know, levitate like David Blaine or something. It wasn't like any of that. People referred to them as magicians because they could predict the future. Specifically, they could predict the calendars and the seasons. Why? Not because they were magicians, but because they knew how to read the stars. They knew how to read the stars, and so people were like, wow, that's crazy. You must be magic. There must be, you must be a magician. But 2,000 years ago, perhaps they didn't have the title of astrologer. In 2019, it would probably be a, a closer description. They're not magicians. They're more than likely astrologers. Now, sometimes people refer to the Magi as kings. The interesting thing about them being kings is that nowhere in Scripture does it say anything about them being kings. There's a famous Christmas song. Perhaps you've heard it. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts from travel afar, right? No, you never heard that song? <laughs> Whatever. Last week, I, I sang a cover of Carrie Underwood. I don't my key into the... People came up to me afterwards. They're like, when's your album coming out, Pastor Matt? I'm ready to buy it. <laughs> yeah, on that album, Carrie Underwood's cover is going to be on there. And my, my we three kings, that'll be on there too. So hey, this could be a Christmas present in 2021 for you or for your loved ones. <laughs> Anyway, so the, the Bible doesn't say anything about these magi actually being kings. It's a hypothesis. It's a theory. Now, it could have been true. It could have been true that there's neighboring countries around this area, and their kings wanted to travel and greet the new king when he was born. So that's possible, but it's not in the scriptures. It's not in the Bible. There's another thing that's not in the Bible, which is the number three. We three kings. Oftentimes, there's the, the three people in the nativity scene, but it doesn't actually say that in scripture. There could have been two magi. There could have been 30 magi. We don't know how many magi there actually were. We get the number three because of the three gifts, the three types of gifts that were given to baby Jesus when the Magi brought, brought those gifts to Jesus. They were gold and frankincense and what? Myrrh. Myrrh. That's just a fun word to say. Myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <laughs> so these, these Magi, however many of them there were, whether they're kings or not, we don't know, they bring these gifts, but because there's three types of gifts, we presume that there's three of them, but Scripture doesn't say how many of them that there were. So we don't know if they were kings. They could have been, maybe, maybe not. We don't know how many of them there were, but what we can be pretty sure of is that these Magi were indeed wise men. Oftentimes on the nativity scene, we refer to these Magi as the wise men. Now, here's why I believe that they were wise. I believe that these men were wise because they were willing to be obedient to what God had them do, even though they didn't have the full picture. God says, hey, I want you to follow the star, and where it lands, I want you to worship the king that's beneath the star. That sounds crazy to me. That sounds outlandish, but these guys not only obeyed, they picked up and they left their country to go on a journey to go and worship because God wanted them to worship the new king. Now, it doesn't say anything in Scripture about questions that these magi, these wise men, perhaps had. They could have had all sorts of questions. God, why are you making us wander around the wilderness? 
Why are you making us go and visit a king? Why, why, why are we bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh? He's a baby. He's not going to remember us. Why are we, you making us do this? Why are you having us follow the star? They could have all these different questions, but they didn't ask those questions. They just simply obeyed. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Those who are wise don't get hung up on wise. Those who are wise don't get hung up on asking the questions and needing the answers before they take action. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying you can't ask questions. Ask questions. Ask all the questions that you want. But at some point, whether you get the answers to your questions or not, at some point in your life, you're going to have to grapple with this thing that we refer to as faith. And faith is choosing to believe in something you cannot prove. Look at what the Bible says about faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You can't prove things that you have faith in. And this is what the ancients were commended for thousands of years ago. The people that had faith, this is what they were applauded for. They were commended for having faith, believing in something you cannot prove. So, so it's not a bad thing to have questions. What's a bad thing is that at some point, if you, if you have a question here and a question here and a question here, and, you, and, and, and at some point you're going to have to wrap your mind around the fact that you need to have faith. So, so ask the questions, but don't let your questions stop you from taking whatever action that God wants you to take. Don't get hung up on the wise. Wise people don't get hung up. They don't get stopped with the wise, with the questions. Look at what St. Augustine says. He says, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Let me read that again. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. These magi were probably wise men after all because God says, hey, I want you to wander out into the wilderness. I want you to leave your country and I want you to go and worship the new king. Perhaps they asked questions. Perhaps they didn't know why God wanted them to do this, but it didn't stop them from being obedient and doing what God asked them to do. So these magi, they pick up from their own countries. They walk all the way over to a new country, and they find themselves in the city of Jerusalem, the city of King Herod. That's where we pick up the story, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem, and they began asking the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Uh-oh. <laughs> wrong place and wrong time, right? They don't know. I mean, these are wise men, but they're not prophets, so they don't know that the king that they're asking these questions to is a psychopathic serial killer that's willing to kill anybody that's going to take the throne. So they show up to Jerusalem. Hey, we're here to, to, to visit the new king of the Jews. Where is he? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Or it gets back to King Herod. There's a bunch of wise guys in town in Jerusalem asking where Where's the new king? Perhaps they saw King Herod. They're like, hey, what's up, King Herod? You're the old king, right? We're here for the new king. Where's he at? <laughs> I'm sure psychopathic serial killer King Herod didn't like this news. Verse 3, we see him beginning to unravel. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. The word in the Greek language for disturbed is a word called terasa, which means stirred up or agitated or troubled. I think a better synonym was perhaps uh, seething. He was fuming. He was furious. You're saying there's another king out there? No, 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 not on my watch, not on this kingdom. No, I'm the ruler. I'm the king. I'm the star of Jerusalem. Ain't nobody taking my crown. I will murder you. I will kill you if you try to take my crown, you try to take my authority. King Herod begins to, to lose it. He gathers, gathers all of his people around. Verse 4, King Herod called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them where, is the, where the Messiah was to be born. In other words, he's asking, hey, did you guys know about this? <laughs> hey, I, I just heard from these wise guys that showed up to, to, uh, to 
of Jerusalem that there's a new king that's being born. Did you guys know about this? Where is this guy supposed to be born? And sure enough, his staff knew about it. They said, verse 5, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, which I'm sure set the king off even more. Like, are you kidding me? You knew there was a new king coming to town on my territory? You knew this and you didn't say anything? You stayed quiet? They continued on. Verse 5, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. And then in verse 6, they're quoting the prophet of Micah from the Old Testament. This is the, the prophecy of the arrival of the Messiah. They said, here's the prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In other words, all these staff members... They knew it all along. Why? Because they knew the scriptures. They knew the, the prophecies. They knew what was going to take place. So King Herod is probably just oozing with anger. Everybody knows there's a new king coming to town except for me. Or maybe he knew it. Or maybe he was apathetic towards it. Or more towards it. Or maybe he, he ignored it. I don't know. But, but it seems like it's a surprise to King Herod. So he calls the Magi back over. Magi, come here for a secret meeting. Don't tell anybody that you're here. Verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star appeared. Now why would he want to know when the star appeared? Because that star showed up in the sky to these astrologers. They saw it. And it showed up the moment that Jesus was born. And so now King Herod is like, I want to know exactly when that star showed up because I want to know the boy that I'm looking for. I want to know how old he is. So he calls the Magi in. Hey, tell me when the star first showed up. And then after that, he ushered them off. Go find him. Verse 8, he sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Right. Psychopathic serial killer, King Herod, you've murdered six people in your family to make sure that they don't become the next king of the Jews. And now you found out there's a new baby king that's just been born and you want to know where he is and, and what he looks like and when he was born so you can come and worship him? Right. These magi go off into Bethlehem. They find baby Jesus. They give him some, some frankincense and some gold and some myrrh. And they give him all these different gifts. And, and afterwards, there's an angel that shows up to these guys again. And, and the angel says, hey, don't go back to Jerusalem because King Herod is crazy. He's, he's going to kill the baby. He's going to kill baby Jesus. So these guys, instead of going back through Jerusalem the way they came, they go back to their respective countries through a different route. Meanwhile, it occurs to King Herod, he got duped by the wise men. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And then he goes off the rails again. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. The serial killer, psychopath, goes crazy again. Now meanwhile in Bethlehem, King Herod is sending an army. He's sending an entourage to go kill off and murder all the baby boys. But in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph had already been warned by an angel as well. Hey, get out of town because King Herod is losing his mind. So get out of here. But you got to remember too, the whole reason they were there for Bethlehem is because they were being counted for the census. It was Joseph's hometown. So he took his young family to go and, and be there to be counted for the census. But their hometown where they live now is in Nazareth. So they never had plans on staying in Bethlehem anyways. So King Herod is going to send her an entourage an army down there to start killing off all the boys, but, but Mary and Joseph and Jesus were all out of there. In fact, they didn't go back to Nazareth either, either because uh, the angel had warned them, so they go off to the country of Egypt, so they're over in Egypt to avoid all the craziness as King Herod descends upon Bethlehem. Now, even though Mary and Joseph and Jesus were out of harm's way, the same could not be said for everybody else in Bethlehem and the surrounding towns. Because when King Herod and his people show up, they start killing off all the baby boys, two years old and younger. In fact, scripture talks about how some of the 
these mothers lost more than one son because of this crazy, psychopathic, hungry-for-power madman of a king, King Herod. Now, here's the question that I have for you. Who do you have more in common with? Do you have more in common with the magi or the mad guy, <laughs> King Herod? Who do you have more in common with? The magi or psychopathic serial killer, King Herod, the madman? Who do you have more in common with? Now, now you might be sitting there thinking, well, Matt, of course, I, I don't have anything in common with a psychopathic serial killer, so by default, I, I have more in common with the wise men, with the magi. But let me rephrase this question. What are you more likely to do? Who, who are you more likely to be? Somebody who says, okay, God, whatever the question is, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to be obedient. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the whys answered, but I'm willing to, to follow you. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Just tell me what to do, when to do it, and I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to be obedient to you, God, no matter what. Are you more like that? Or are you more like somebody who says, I want control no matter what? I'm willing to do anything to keep control, maintain control, to have control. And I don't want to let go. I don't want to not have control because that scares me. That frustrates me. So I'm going to do everything I can to hold on to control. Which one are you more like? Somebody who's willing to be obedient no matter what? Or are you hanging on to control no matter, no matter what comes your way? And I ask this question because most people, even though you're not a psychopathic serial killer, <laughs> most people lean towards this other direction because you want power. You want control. You want to be the one in charge. And anytime you lose control, you start to flip out and lose your mind. And you get frustrated. You start getting angry. You start seething. When, when you get let go or laid off from a job, you didn't make that choice. And you're angry. You're frustrated. Because it affects you and you had nothing to do with it. Or maybe there's another situation or scenario where you, you get a diagnosis, for example, and you can't control anything about that. And it's frustrating to you because you're not in control. Or maybe you've got a, a kid, and their decisions are such that you wouldn't approve. You don't want them to do the things that they're doing, but you're not in control. You can't force them to do what you want them to do, and it makes you so mad, makes you frustrated. Or maybe your spouse does things or says things. Because you can't control your spouse, it makes you angry, makes you frustrated. Most people get really, really frustrated, and they want to hang on to all the control they have. And quite frankly, this is why so many people don't want to become Christians. Because the idea of becoming a Christian saying, I'm going to take off my crown. I'm not going to be the king or the queen. I'm going to get, take, take this crown and I'm going to give it to Jesus. Jesus is going to be the king of my life. He's going to be the king of my heart. A lot of people don't want to take that step. Why? Because they're fearful of letting go of control. But here's the reality, friends. When you choose to be somebody who says, Jesus, you are the king of my life. Open-handedly, I give you control. You have far more to gain than you will ever lose. You have way more to gain with Jesus as the king of your heart than you will ever lose. Sometimes we hold on, I want control. But when you give it up, here's the reality. You are not suppressed. You will be blessed. Consider these words from Paul in the New Testament. He says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3.17. He says, now the, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Anywhere where God is, there is freedom. And this isn't just something that's an option for you. This is something you were called to experience as a human being. Look at what, what it says in Galatians 5.13. Paul says to this church, he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's what we were designed for. We were intended to be free. People who are experiencing freedom. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, freedom from what? What do I need freedom from? You. 
Freedom from your own decisions, from the prison you've put yourself in, from your own sinful choices. Because there's weight, there's embarrassment, there's shame, there's guilt that comes with sin. We put ourselves in this own jail. Look at what what, uh, Paul says in Galatians 5.1. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? It's when you have put yourself in this own jail based on your decisions, based on your sins, based on your deviation, based on your selfishness. And you find yourself paying the consequences and facing the results of your own decisions. That's the weight on your shoulders. And Paul says, hey, you can be freed from that. You're called to experience freedom. You are called to to be somebody that doesn't have that burden on you anymore. Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I wonder how many of you are weary and burdened right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do these words sound like the words of a dictator or an angry king or a tyrant? To me, these words sound like the words of a gentle, loving, humble Savior. You see, when we, we give control and authority over to, to Jesus and say, you get to be the king of my heart, we got far more to gain than we ever lose. And some people might think, well, that's for all the Christians. That's for all the the people that have it all together. That's for the people that come to church every single week. That's for the people that know all the Bible verses and memorize scripture. That's the kind of peace that they get. They get rest because they've qualified for it. They've earned it. But not so according to what Luke says. Look at what Luke says in Acts 13. He says, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Everyone who believes is set free. Not just the good Christians. Not just the ones who have it all together. Not just the ones who never fight with their spouse. Not just the ones who know the scriptures. Everyone. Everyone is set free from every sin for those who have faith in Jesus. For the people who say, I'm going to take the crown off. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to be the king of my heart. You're going to be the king of my life. You are set free. Anybody. Everybody can be set free from all of their sins, including the adulterer, including the prostitute, including the meth addict, the meth dealer, including, get this, children murderers. This is the irony to this whole story. King Herod was adamant. I don't want a new king in Jerusalem. There's not going to be another king of the Jews. I'm the king. I'm the star. There's no room for this little Messiah. There's no room for Jesus. The irony is that Jesus was exactly what King Herod needed in his own life. And he was so resistant. I don't want this new king. That new king is exactly what his heart needed. That was true 2019 years ago. And it's still true today. Because so many people, I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want to give up control. 
I want to hold on to this, and I want to hold on to this, and I want to make all the shots. I want to make all the decisions. And the very people that are pushing Jesus away, the very people that need Jesus in their lives, are the very people that need to say, you need to be my king, Jesus. It's not to say that we don't all need him as our king, but Jesus himself said, I didn't come from the healthy, I came for the sick. The very people that are pushing him away, saying, I don't want you as my king, are the very people that need him as their king. Friends, there's way more that you benefit when you take off the crown and you give it to Jesus and say, you are the king of my heart. You, you get hope, you get freedom, you get grace, you get forgiveness, you get joy. Joy, the song we just sang in the beginning of the service, joy to the world, the Lord is here, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let earth receive the king, when you make Jesus your king, there is joy, not just for a select few, for the world, there's joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, have you received the king? Here's my final question for you this morning, have you relinquished the crown? Have you taken the crown off your head and given it to Jesus to say, I trust you. So many people want to hold on to this power. I want to be the king. I want to be the ruler. I want to be the one with the power. But when you relinquish it, you have far more to gain than you will ever lose. And there's joy in that decision. And friends, here's the good news of everything that I've shared. The good news is that at any time, any place, you can make the decision to have Jesus become the king of your heart. You can make that call right now. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So for those of you who have never accepted Jesus as the king of your life, the king of your heart, I want to invite you to make that call, to make that choice right now. In fact, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray together. If you've never made that decision before, you could just make my words your words. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for for all the people that we read in this Christmas story. And God, we thank you even for King Herod so we can see how how power destroys people. God, I pray for every one of us in here that we've been holding on to control. We desperately so want to be in control that we haven't relinquished that control. Maybe it's people that have never accepted you before into their lives, God. Maybe it's people who have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior or their King. Perhaps it's, it's even people who have accepted their their king as Jesus into their lives and they keep taking back that control. They want to be the one in charge. They want the authority and they struggle relinquishing the crown. God, I I pray that each one of us can give that crown over to Jesus and that in that decision there would be hope, there would be freedom, and there would be joy. May we be people who are filled with joy because Jesus is in our heart as the king. And we say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.